Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. I'd like to start before we get too serious with a couple of stories, uh, a couple of jokes, but before I do, I need to probably explain this one if you're not around church a lot. Um, I wanted to pick an, an, a, a joke about resurrection. There was this guy that Jesus raised from the dead. His name was Lazarus, and he stood at the tomb and he yelled, Lazarus, come forth! And, and of course, Lazarus came out of the grave. And you know why he said Lazarus? Because if he had just said, come forth, every grave would have emptied. So he had to call it Lazarus. So that being said, now that you know the story, uh, why don't racehorse owners ever name their horses Lazarus? Because they always come forth. And I, I'm really trying to figure out what bunnies have to do with Easter, but uh, it doesn't matter. I'll go with it. Uh, how do you know that carrots are good for your eyes? You ever see a bunny wearing glasses? That's a groaner. I t- somebody told me in the green room after listening to that twice said, I really didn't like that joke. And I said, well, neither did I, but I picked it anyway, just to make you groan. So, anybody in the room, you've ever been summoned uh, to, like, uh, 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 be a, a juror? Anybody? Yeah? How many of you actually went and you actually had to sit through a jury trial? Wait a minute. Wow, a lot of you had to sit through a jury trial. All right, so um, what I want to do is I want to talk about evidence today. I want to talk, basically, um, what's the verdict? I'm going to make you, if you will, I'm going to make you the jury, and I'm going to be the prosecuting attorney today, and I just want to present some facts for you and, and see if you can make a decision based upon the facts and the weight of the testimony um, about, about the resurrection of Jesus. Before we do that, I, we need to establish what is the evidence that you need to determine what truth is. You would need evidence, right? So um, uh, let me give you a couple of starters, just get your mind thinking, and we can look at the, evi- the evidence for or against, all right? The first one is, the Arizona Highway Patrol was driving down the road one day and they looked up and saw a crater in the side of a, of a cliff about 125 feet up the side of a mountain. So they, uh, what happened is they started doing some research and they found out it was the smoking remains of a car. So what they did was they went back and they investigated along the road and they found out that, well, they pieced together. What had happened is a guy had taken a JATO unit. Do you all know what a JATO unit is? A JATO unit is a jet-assisted takeoff. So what they do is like a C-130s on a short runway, you know, a transport plane, and it doesn't have enough runway to get up to speed to get in the air, they'll attack one of these JATO units, which will immediately get it up to speed because a rocket like fires. So some dude had attached to his 1967 Chevy Impala, a JATO unit. And it's on the Arizona, you know, people want to set land speed records, do so in Arizona where it's all flat and all that kind of stuff. So he got on a flat highway and he uh, got up to about 100 mile an hour and he flipped the switch and they figured out where he flipped the switch because, you know, the asphalt on the road was burned from the lighting uh, of the JATO unit and the, and the road was scorched. So anyway, about 15 seconds later, about two miles down the road, um, he uh, decides, I got to slow this thing down. So he hit the brakes 
brakes. Well, when he hit the brakes, uh, they found the screech marks of him hitting the brakes and his wheels blew because it couldn't handle the speed and the JDO unit was still firing. So he exploded his wheels and then that caused him just shortly after that to leave the ground and to be propelled into the side of the cliff. Now, is that a true story? It's the 1995 Darwin Award winner. Is that a true story? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions here, okay? Who wants to set a land speed record like that and have nobody see it happen? Nobody. Come on. In the, in the joy of going fast, somebody watching so they can tell how fast you went? Right? Right? Who's witnessing this story? Nobody. So there's no witness anywhere. You know what else there isn't? There's no other evidence. Because no one can locate the smoking remains. Nobody can locate the crater. Nobody can even find in the Arizona Highway Patrol. Nobody can find that this story ever happened. So did this story happen? There's no evidence. There's no eyewitnesses. There, it's just a good story told. Did it happen? Come on, Jerry, help me. No, it didn't. All right, but the story is based off of a story of a couple of guys in Guam that attached, a, this is World War II, they attached a couple of uh, old JATO units to a Jeep. These are the ones before they were really jet-powered the way jet-powered is now. They attached them to a Jeep, and they thought they were going to go down the three-mile runway, and they fired two of them, two guys sitting in the Jeep, and basically the Jeep disintegrated in about 15 seconds, and everybody died. But that's the true story. I think that one's better than the other one. How about this one, though? In 1982, there was a guy named Larry Walters. And Larry Walters attached 45 four-foot weather balloons to a lawn chair. And he took, a, he took a, 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 a cooler, and he put his lunch in a cooler, and he had a BB gun attached to his side so that when he got high enough, he could shoot out the, uh, the, a couple of the weather balloons and come back to the ground. So he's attached to a lawn chair, and he's tied off to a Jeep, and his buddies are there, and they, they unhook him from the Jeep. And when they unhook him from the Jeep, instead of going to a couple hundred feet like he thought, he went to 16,000 feet. And he's hovering... And and floating over, he was afraid to shoot out the balloons because if he did, he thought he'd come crashing back to the ground. And what happened was uh, there were people who, from the airport that literally were calling in Long Beach Airport, were calling in, what is this thing floating in the air? So uh, eventually he decided he needed to shoot out the balloons. So he shot out a couple balloons and he came back to the ground. And when he came back to the ground, um, he actually landed in a power cable and caused an outage in Long Beach for 20 minutes minutes, a power outage. Now, his buddies saw it. Well, hold on just a second. One of his buddies did something before he went up, uh, did that. So I'll ask you a question. Is this a true story? Why is it a true story? How do you know? There's evidence and there's eyewitness testimony that is all logged, by the way, in the flight records of the planes that saw him in the newspaper reports about the power outage. So do, are we establishing that if there is a story that happened, there will be evidence? And, and evidence, the number one most powerful form of evidence is eyewitness testimony. All right, so that being said, let's jump in and let me tell you why I want to preach this message to you today. Or share this, if you will. Is we have a huge problem in our culture today. And the problem is, is that narrative has taken the place of truth. Evidence does not matter if you have a good story to tell. 
And I could give you a dozen scenarios that are repeated as truth in our culture that are not factually true. I could give you a couple of those stories and you'd be like, no, no, you're wrong. Do your homework. I, I didn't, didn't though COVID teach us this? You created your narrative in COVID and you got mad at anybody that had a false narrative? Nobody actually found the facts. Actually, as a matter of fact, when I did find facts and then I'd hear news stories, they would, whichever side, they would go against the literal facts. So this is what you did. This is what I did. We all created a narrative around what we felt about COVID, regardless of what the actual facts were. And I know you're the only person that researched the facts, so you didn't do that. <laughs> but we have that now around all kinds of things, right? Sexuality, gender, race, religion, your own personal identity. You create a narrative. I talked with the guy right here after second service. He has created a narrative about why he is not lovable. And it's a total lie because I love him. So he is lovable. What kind of narratives have replaced facts in your life? And what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the facts of one single story today. And for that, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Around here, we stand in honor of these scriptures. There are some letters written. They're compiled in this book. And this book we call Scripture. This book we call Inspired by God. It's humans wrote it, but it was inspired by the breath of God. So it speaks to us. And I would like us to honor this as we read this portion today. For what I received. Now, this is a guy named Paul writing a letter. He's writing a letter to a church he founded. We'll talk about that in a second. Writing this letter, he says to them now, for what I, come on, here's the key word, for what I received. Can everybody say that with me? For what I received. I passed on to you. Past tense. I've already passed it on. As of first importance, that that, now this, every time you see that, there's a sign in this passage. That is the Greek word hoti, and it means because of or therefore, therefore. And this is a, uh, this is a creedal structure. So this is like a creed, like the Apostles' Creed or something. This is an early version. And it's written in a format to convey this creedal structure. So back up. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And this is the earliest creedal formula. Can we back that up? Could y'all do the that's with me? Would y'all be all right to do that? Back, can you back it up one slide? For what I received, I pass on to you first importance. Y'all ready? Read it with me. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. You notice there's a that motion. There's a little bit of rhythm to it. Shorter, longer, shorter. I didn't find it until I was reading in the Greek this time. I'd read about it for years, but I didn't personally discover it until this time. And I saw that and I was like, ah, oh, I get it now. And that is an early creedal formula. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But uh, I want to pray this. Father, 
I want to present some evidence today, and I would like our hearts to hear, and I pray that in the name of Jesus, every person in this place would hear not just with their ears and not just with their mind. I do want to engage their mind, but I ask as well that you would engage their heart in this moment. I cannot do that. Only you can do that, and I ask you to do it so that today our hearts would be open and our brains would be open and our spirits would be open to the fact that you are alive. Amen. Amen. Before you're seated, I would like you to turn to somebody and say, you're really lucky. You get to sit next to me today. (laughs) Hey, you're really lucky. I get to hang out with you today. If you're online, God bless you. (laughs) So if you're going to look at evidence, if you're going to look at evidence, you need to examine evidence from multiple angles to find out what the truth is. So I want us to look at this creedal statement, this formula, presented by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, and I want us to look at it from three different angles. So the first angle we're going to look at it is the angle of the timing of the writing of this passage. Now, why does this matter? Well, this creedal statement was written before the Apostle Paul, and it was passed on by Paul, and timing matters. We'll talk about it in just a second, but really, really, here's the important part. I've done a lot of research. I've talked to atheists over the years. I've debated with them, and I've listened to them and talked to them. And atheists, you know, they all, there was a kid here years ago. I'll just do it this way. There was a kid in our church years ago that started watching some stuff on YouTube, and this stuff on YouTube was 90% lie and 10% truth. And what it was saying is, and, and this is the part we tried to talk about, and he wouldn't listen to me, but all of the stories in the Old Testament, uh, all the stories of antiquity, not in the Old Testament, antiquity, all of the stories of ancient history, they're all equal. And there are lots of stories about the resurrection. And they're all equal. And that's what he was saying. So what I would like to do is I would like to take just a second. I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but I'd like to tell you why not all stories in the Old Te- are in antiquity are equal. Not all stories from Greek or uh, Hebrew or Egyptian uh, myth are equal. Okay? And the first thing is the timing. So what the Apostle Paul says when he's writing this letter, he said, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. And he's saying that he received something that he passed on. Now, Paul is writing, to help us understand this, we have to understand when Paul wrote this letter. So I'm going to throw up a timeline of events. There's a timeline of events. So Paul is writing this letter in AD 54. Uh, Paul is writing a letter and he says, I had received this and I had passed on to you this creedal formula. And he said, this creedal formula is what I gave you. And when did he give it to him? When he planted the church in AD 52. He had planted the church in 52, and that's when he told them this formula. So when did Paul get it if he already had it when he showed up in AD 52? Well, there are two options. One is when he started his ministry back in AD 41, and he began preaching for the first time. But the more likely circumstances, around 50 AD, this formula was in operation, and Paul heard it for the first time at the Council of Jerusalem. Now, the Council of Jerusalem is important because that's the first time everybody got together after the resurrection of Jesus to make some decisions decisions about how the church was going to operate. 
And at that council, we'll refer it later, James, a guy named James is the one that took the lead and we'll refer that. Well, this council was when they approved Paul to go out and to preach his message. And they probably, Paul probably heard this credo for me and passed along. So why is that important? Well, because Jesus was crucified in AD 33 and resurrected in AD 33. And if my math serves me correct, that's about 17 years. It's as, it's as close as eight years that Paul received this creedal formula and as late as 17 years before he received this creedal formula. Why does that matter? Because in antiquity, for somebody to live and for stories to grow up about them to make them into a god, in antiquity, it takes at least a century for that to happen. Do you know why? Because everybody needs to die that knew the person, that knew they weren't a God, before they're turned into a God. Is everybody following me? So the fact that this story happens within 17 years, what it means is that the common repeatable formula for a resurrected Christ was constructed and communicated less than 20 years after his death. And Roman and pagan resurrection stories took at least a century to develop so that people could blow things out of proportion, right? All right. Now, why does this matter? When I say 9-11, what do you think about? The Twin Towers, right? What would, have, what would you have thought about if I would have said that to you in 2000? I would have said 9-11. You would have had no thought approach to it other than maybe it's 911. you know, you call if you're in need. But something happened September 11th, 2001. What happened? We know what happened because a vast majority of us were alive. And even if you weren't alive, you have talked to people that saw it. I had seen the Twin Towers before they fell. I saw the hole in the ground after they fell. Correct? Can anybody convince you that it didn't happen? Why? Because you have evidence. And many of you saw it happen on TV. Now, in 100 years, they're going to be saying that they did this like the moon landing and something, it was digitally creative. I prophesied that. In 100 years, there'll be people that'll do that. I was, anyway, I'm skipping that. Now, all, all I need to do is say this, is that if it happened in your lifetime, you know what didn't didn't happen because of your eyewitness testimony. And I want you to notice that this creedal statement is written, developed, formulated, and passed around within the lifetime of everybody who saw it happen. Okay? Second, the second angle we're going to look at is we're going to look at the actual content of the creedal statement or the hymn itself. What is the content of this hymn? So let's read it again. Uh, For what I received, I also passed on to you. Now, this wasn't written by Paul. This was wasn't actually, the the core of this wasn't even what the apostles wrote, but it is a reference to the Old Testament scripture. He says, what I received, I pass on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why this multiple um, appeal to the scriptures? Well, there is an Old Testament Bible that was out there. Um, There's a lot of goofed up things in the Old Testament. If you've never read it, you don't know how goofed up it can be. But if you ever have, there's some goofed up stories in there, right? 
correct? Because the Old Testament, you ready for this? What we call the Old Testament Bible are people struggling to understand God until he's revealed in Christ. And what we have in the New Testament are people struggling to understand what happened when Jesus was revealed. So the Old Testament are stories written looking forward to the coming of Christ. Now, one of those is his, the statement about Jesus' crucifixion. The scriptures actually tell us how the crucifixion is going to happen. Psalm 22 says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce, they do what? They pierce my what? My hands and my feet. All my bones are on display and people stare and gloat over me. All right, wait, wait. Some things you need to know about crucifixion. First of all, they didn't put them high up on a cross like this. They put them about six inches off the ground. Why? So that every person that walked by would have to look in their pain-filled face and be scared to mess with the Romans. So people would stare and gloat over you, especially those that wanted Jesus dead. Something else, my bones are on display. The crucifixion by its very nature meant that there was a pulling of, to get a breath the way you hung. You had to pull up to get a breath. Does anybody know what happens when you're dehydrated in the heat with already blood loss and you're exercising and pulling and pulling? What happens when you exercise and you're dehydrated? Has anybody ever gotten a cramp? And what happens if you can't rub the cramp out, say, of your shoulder or your hips? What happens? Your bones become dislocated from the sockets, and they literally protrude out. Now, and not only that, they pierce my hands and feet. They, they would take nails and drive it through the hands right here and right here and through the heel of the feet. And, and all of this was done in a way to create the ultimate pain on the person crucified. And by the way, this description of crucifixion is written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. 700 years before the Persians crucified their first person. Just think about that. And in case you're wondering if it could apply to just anybody, well then let's look a little further down in verse 16. It says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What's happening while Jesus is hanging on the cross? What were they doing? This very thing. They were casting lots for his garment. It's told in the story of the Gospels. So crucifixion, the very events of the cross were crucified I mean, were prophesied a thousand years before they happened. And now one more, burial. Burial. Isaiah 59.3 says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. How do you get assigned a grave with the wicked? Well, you've got to die in a wicked way. And by the way, crucifixion was reserved for people who were lawbreakers of the worst kind. So Jesus, because he was very crucified, was assigned wickedness. And with the rich in his death. So Jesus, think, think about this, Jesus didn't have a tomb. He didn't come from a rich family. So you know what he did? He borrowed Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, who was a rich guy, right? He borrowed it because he said, you know what, I ain't going to need this very long. It's like an Airbnb. I just take it for a couple of days. <laughs> and, then, and then what? Though he had done no violence or was any deceit in his mouth, Jesus, what we know about Jesus, he wasn't a liar and he wasn't violent. And these are all descriptions of his burial from the scriptures that are all 100% accurate. How about this one? Resurrection. Psalm 1610. 
you will not abandon me to the realm of dead. You will not let your faithful one see decay. But yet, David, the same guy who wrote Psalm 22, David did die, and he did get buried, and he did decay. But yet he prophesied that it wouldn't happen because he wasn't talking about him. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus, the one that was to come from his lineage who would not die and would not see decay. And in Hosea 6, 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. So there is a, a proclamation on the third day, Jesus would rise from the dead or, or whoever this Messiah would be would rise from the dead. And in case you're wondering, it also happened in Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the womb or the earth three days and three nights. There are all these prophecies. By the way, there are more prophecies. Do you know there are over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled only in the person of Jesus? 300 prophecies. Literally, the Bible tells us where he will be born, what his lineage will be, that John the Baptist would precede him, that he would teach in parables. Do you know the Old Testament says there's a prophecy that Jesus would teach in parables? That would be his teaching style? How about this? He would be a miracle worker. He even tells us he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. All of those are factual prophecies. Listen, I've already given you 12 prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. So there was a guy named Dr. Stoner. I love his name, I have to be admit. I have to admit it. Dr. Stoner. <laughs> he was a math dude. And in the book, Science Speaks, he was a, I think he worked at UCLA is I think what he was. He was a mathematician. And in his book, um, he taught, it takes this well-known answer, he said, uh, uh, analogy. He said, what would it be like, you know, he took eight prophecies and his mathematicians worked out that one person would fulfill all eight prophecies, just eight. Remember, we have 300, but he's not doing 300, and I gave you 12, but just eight, just eight prophecies. What would be the likelihood of one person meeting all eight prophecies? And they put it to math, and they came up that it would be one over 1 to the 17th power. If you don't know how much that is, that's 1 over 1 with 17 zeros behind it. And that's the likelihood of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies, and there are 300. He said, I know you can't get your brain around that, so let me, let me give you an illustration. If we were to take a space the size of Texas, anybody ever been to Texas? It's big. A space the size of Texas. And we were to fill it three feet deep with silver dollars. And we were to take one silver dollar, and we were to mark that one silver dollar, and we were to thoroughly mix that one silver dollar into all the size of Texas, three feet deep of silver dollars. And we were to blindfold you and say, now go pick out a silver dollar, and you were to pick the one silver dollar. That's the likelihood of one man meeting just eight of the prophecies when there are 300. The third angle we want to look at is the angle of the witnesses. Can I just say that there is no historical equivalent to the story of Jesus' resurrection? There is no historical equivalent. I'm not even talking biblical or faith here. I'm talking that I... All right, so... Remember the guy told me years ago, he said, well, you know, all, 
all the stories about resurrection told by all these other myths, they're all the same. So you know what I did? I did some research. Actually, I'd already been doing some research, so I started reading other stories in antiquity of, you know, like, what can, you know, Remus and Romulus, the founders of Rome, who were resurrected by wolves and suckled from the wolves. Yeah, yeah. Written 300 years after it happened, and there's no actual resurrection in the story, but it's all right. They were warmed up by the wolves. So I did another one. How about this one? How about Orisis? Have anybody ever heard that? Orisis was resurrected. So I did some research. Can I give you Orisis resurrection story in just a little bit to compare it to the story we're about to hear? I'll give it to you really quickly. So Orisis was a king that lived about 12 to 1300 BC, presumably. And Orisis apparently made some god mad. So the god came down, drowned him in the Nile took his body, cut it in 14 pieces, and threw his body around the, uh, the land of Egypt. Well, Orisis' wife went and got a goddess, and the goddess and Orisis decided they were going to find the 14 pieces. So they found, they found all 14 pieces, and they buried 13 of them, but they kept his phallus. You ever notice how this is always a part of... Anyway, if you don't know what that means, ask somebody later. So they kept his phallus, and his, that they didn't bury, but that went to the underworld where he then was resurrected in the underworld, and he judged people. And by the way, that story was made popular about 1,100 years after it happened. And that, I am told by atheists, is equal to the story of Jesus. Right? No, there's not even any resurrection. The guy lived in the underworld. Do you know the, hold on, this is what's unique about Jesus' story. First of all, he was a real human that we can prove existed because non-Christians wrote about him, like Josephus. So he's a real human that we know existed. We know the claim that he was crucified and that claim is substantiated by other evidence. We know that on the third day after his burial, his followers claimed that he was resurrected from the dead. And we know very clearly that their claims were his body was taken into heaven because he never died again. Now, Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, but Lazarus died again, right? Everybody else has died again. This is the only story in all of history where that is the facts or the claims. It's totally different, completely different. That's like saying that Muslims and Christians and Buddhists all serve the same God. No. No. You do any kind of research, you'll find out they're totally different. And by the way, there are some of you that the God you say you serve is not the God I serve. Because your God is a jerk. And you know what? I don't believe in your God. I believe in the God who's in the Bible that was resurrected from the dead. And some of you need to lay down your view of God because it's totally messed you up and it's wrong. And you should be an atheist of that God too. There's a real one. So let's talk about him. So, who saw Jesus alive? It says, that he appeared... 
to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. At the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and then he, last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. So let's take them one at a time. The first, well, before we can do that, I have to talk about the omissions. You know who's not listed here? The women. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who's the first person to see Jesus alive? The women. Why are they not included? Well, let me tell you. No, no, no. I had about that much in my notes, and my wife said to me, we took a walk, and I started breaking out for her all I wanted to say about the omissions. And she said, thou must omit the omissions. <laughs> Unless you want to be here till three. I mean, I can go. I can do this. No, you, you want, because the brain can only absorb what the butt can endure, all right? So I'm going <laughs> to omit the omissions. How about that? Can we just admit this, though, that there are people that saw Jesus alive that are not listed in this creedal statement? Could we agree with that? They claim they saw Jesus alive, all right? All right. Then he starts with Cephas. He appeared to Cephas. So what do we know about Cephas? Well, Cephas is the Hebrew name for rock. And Peter is the Greek name for rock. So, by the way, Paul only in one passage calls Peter, Peter. Every other time he calls him Cephas. Because the early creedal statement had the name of Cephas, which means this was, wow, anyway, I'm not going to geek out. Cephas, Cephas was Peter. What do we know about Peter? We know that the day Jesus was uh, taken to trial, Peter went to follow him to the courtyard. And as he's there in the courtyard, a little Greeks, the little slave girl walked up to him and said, hey, you were one of them. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not one of them. I don't even know this Jesus. A little later, there was another girl come up to him and said, you were one of them. And he said, no, I'm not. I don't even know this Jesus. A little later, he's around the campfire. And while he's gathered around the campfire, they said, yeah, your accent gives you away. You know this Jesus. You were with him. He said, turkey, duck, chicken. I was not. And the reason I said that's because that's my foul language. So Peter cursed and said that he didn't know this Jesus. And what happened? Well, after Jesus was resurrected, Peter goes fishing. So obviously he's not expecting a resurrection scenario. And he's fishing, he's out in the boat, and some guy says, yo, you caught anything? He said, no. And they said, throw your, note on the, uh, your net on the other side. So he throws his net out and he gets a big catch of fish. And Peter looks up and says, it's the Lord. And he jumps in the water and he runs to the shore. And P Jesus is there waiting for him. He's made breakfast for him. And he says, oh, Peter, let's go take a walk. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do, Lord. It's okay. Walk a little further. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And the third time, third time, Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, do you really love me more than all this? And Peter gets it. How many times did he deny Christ? Three. Three times. How many times did Jesus ask him? And in that moment, Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. You knew all things. And I wonder if that resurrection affected Peter. You know, Mr. Guy who, uh, who would turn and run from a little slave girl? I wonder if it changed him seeing and meeting Jesus. We'll find out in a couple of minutes how Peter died. All right? Next one is, um, well, let me see. The, uh, the 12. 
There are several examples of Jesus appearing to the twelve. Can I give you one? Good, I will. John 20, 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Now, Thomas had previously said, yeah, you guys can believe this. I'm not going to believe it until I stick my fingers in Jesus' hands and stick my hand in his side. Yeah, I'm not going to believe it. You guys are all full of it. You don't know what you're talking about, right? So, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. And the reason Jesus said, peace be with you, because if I'm in a room with the locked door and some dude appears, I'm going to need a paper towel and a peace be with me. And then he said to Thomas, he said, okay, big boy, come here. Let's do this. He said, put your finger here. See my hands? And reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now, I'm just asking a simple question, all right? Very, very simple question. Do you think this had an effect on Thomas? We'll find out in a couple of minutes how Thomas lived and died. And then there's this statement about 500 of the brothers. It says there are 500 of the brothers, most of whom are still alive. Now, come on. If I tell you that 500 people saw me get married 30 years ago, most of them are still alive. If you don't believe we're married, what am I inviting you to do? Go ask them. What is Paul issuing here? A challenge. You don't believe the story? Talk to the people that saw him alive. And he said, this all happened at one time. This 500 happened at one time. And so I had this guy say to me one time, well, you know, there's all kinds of apparitions that happen. You know, people see Mary all the time. Crowds get together and Mary appeals to them. And I'm like, well, okay. Can we, can we look at the factuality of that? The one thing I know about that is, is that when people show up and Mary appears in every single every single situation the people went expecting that to happen and the one thing I know about the resurrection is nobody expected Jesus to show up they all went back to fishing and doing other stuff all right so how about this one James this is probably the most convincing to me because there's this guy named James now, James, the one apostle, one of the apostles named James, died in A.D. 44, so he couldn't be this James. This James was Jesus had two half-brothers, Jude and James. And Jude and James were his two half-brothers. James was actually older than Jude. And what we know about James and Jude is one day they came to try to take Jesus to the funny farm. They did. They tried to take him away and send him to the funny farm. And... Uh, and Jesus, you know, he, he said, these aren't my mothers and brothers. Uh, don't worry about them, you disciples, or who follow me. And, uh, and so James was actually opposed to Jesus. But yet, we find, by the time we get to Acts 15, that James is the undisputed leader of the entire church in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, here's a quote for you. It is difficult to account for the centrality and unrivaled leadership of James unless he was himself known to have seen the risen Christ. How did James, who didn't even believe in Jesus on the day that he was crucified because Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John instead of his brother, but yet shortly after that, this James is now calling Jesus God in his own book in the New Testament. How did that happen? Well, can I ask you guys a question? Anybody in the room have a brother? 
What would it take to make you think your brother was God? <laughs> so Jesus, own brother who denied him, now calls him God because Jesus appeared to him. And then last of all, it says all the apostles. Uh, Romans chapter 16 verse 7 says that there's a group of apostles. One of them is a lady named Junius who saw Jesus alive apparently. And as apostle, uh, there were a lot of people that saw Jesus alive. We don't even know their names. And then there is last of all Paul. And Paul calls himself one abnormally born. What that means is he's, a, um, he's an abortion that survived is what that word means. And he said, because I was a persecutor of Jesus, I don't even deserve to survive. But Jesus appeared to me and I saw him alive too. Now, I've given you eyewitness testimony. Very simple. Watergate taught us something. That 12 guys cannot keep a secret. <laughs> Anybody ever get in trouble? Come on, anybody ever get in trouble? And you all say, we're not going to roll on each other. And then the pressure gets really hot and somebody always rolls, correct? Always. Punks. Anyway. <laughs> all right, so who rolled on Jesus? Of all of these people that saw him alive, let's, let's just read about the apostles. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome about AD 64 because he said, I don't deserve to die like my Lord. The guy who denied Jesus three times was crucified upside down. James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded in AD 44 by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. John, son of Zebedee, died of natural causes due to old age. But there is this story about there, out there about him being boiled in hot oil and he somehow survived it. I don't know. I think I might have preferred to die. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified upon a diagonal cross or an X-shaped cross. Philip was crucified in AD 54. Bartholomew, called Nathaniel, was skinned alive, then beheaded near the Caspian Sea. Matthew was killed by a sword about A.D. 60 in Ethiopia. Thomas was killed by a spear in India in A.D. 72. James, son of Alphaeus, was beaten to death with a club after being crucified and stoned. Now that was a bad day. Jude was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified in A.D. 74. Matthias, Judas's replacement, was stoned and beheaded. How many of them rolled? How many of them said, I didn't see Jesus alive? All it would have taken is one time for them to say, no, we made it up. And they would have gotten out alive. But all of them were committed to what they experienced till the day they died. Not one rolled of those 500. How many of them said it didn't happen? There is no evidence anywhere in antiquity of the hundreds of people who saw and experienced a resurrected Jesus saying, I made it up. Not one. brilliant professor of philosophy in London University, C.E.M. Jode. He was not a Christian. He was not a Christian. But he was asked a question that changed his world on a radio program. He said, if you could ever eat any, meet any person from the past and ask them just one question, whom would you meet and what would the question be that you would ask them? Professor Jode answered. He said, I would meet Jesus Christ and I would ask him the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? Not long after that, Professor Joe did his investigation. And he became convinced that Jesus was really resurrected from the dead. And he gave his heart to Christ. And he wrote a book 
called the recovery of belief. This is very personal to me because I believed in a God that I couldn't live with. He was supposed to be the Christian God, but the more I got to know him, the more I realized I had been fed lies. And it was several years ago at a Motel 8 in Millersburg, Ohio, that I said, I believe the evidence. I confess you, Jesus, as my Lord. Now, I'd already been a pastor for over 10 years when I did that. Because the evidence became so real that I had to take the real Jesus instead of the churchy Jesus. And what I want to present to you today is that the fact of a resurrected Jesus is basically indisputable as proof. And if he was resurrected, then that means he can deal with your sin issue and your shame issue and your guilt issue and your past mistakes. He's already covered every single one of them. Because if he's resurrected, then his death accomplished what he came to do. Second of all, Jesus can give you a resurrected life. Where you don't have to be afraid of not mattering. You don't have to be afraid of not belonging. You don't have to be afraid that you don't fit because you've been accepted by the one who's going to give you eternity. And who cares about a couple of years on this earth if it really is the truth? And last of all, if Jesus was resurrected, he is who he said he is. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one deserving of all of our loyalty and worship. issue you a straight up challenge the evidence is here and God is dealing with your heart today is your day for you to confess him as Lord no more no more fooling around your identity can be changed. It can be locked in who he made you to be rather than who this world tells you to be and who your own lies tell you you're to be. He can make you a new creation right now, right now in this room, right now. And the deal is I'm not going to do it the way I'm supposed to. I'm going to have us all stand and we're going to sing a song. And there's going to be some people that are going to stand here across the front. And what they're going to do is, if you want somebody to pray with you, or maybe you have a question, you would like some answers. we got some places we can point you to to find the next level of answers. We want to help you on this journey. We're going to stand and sing a song. And if you want somebody to pray with you or talk with you, they're going to be right here, right now waiting. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Nobody leave. Give me, give me two minutes. We'll sing this song. And then I'll dismiss you with a prayer. Could we all stand? Let's sing this song. And if you want somebody to pray with you, move now. Move.